You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. This is James 1, uh, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In God's providence this morning, um, he has us in a passage about suffering. And much of what I'll say this morning, I already planned to say before the tragedy of this week. And so God, uh, in his kindness, knew what we would need, knew what I would need. Um, I, I do want to say this. Um, my heart's just heavy. And, um, and this isn't about me, but I don't really know how to shut that off. And I don't know that it's good to shut that off. And I just imagine we'll all feel that this morning, um, the heaviness of it but then also the hope. For most of my life, I've been close to pain and suffering. Uh, the way I've described it is it's, it's, um, it's, it's if, if pain is like a, a bomb, it's like that leaves a crater. A lot of my life has been spent right on the edge looking into the middle of it. Um, the persistent theme of my life has, has been around people who've been hurting. I, you know, sometimes I've been right in the middle, but most of the time I've, I've just been right on the edge watching people I love hurt. When I was four years old, my little brother was born with uh, spina bifida and a few other challenges, and so he's been uh, unable to walk for his entire life. He's had something like 10 major surgeries before his 10th birthday, and uh, we spent, our family spent a lot of time at Scottish Rite in Dallas and Children's Hospital in Dallas, and nothing in this world says that this world is not the way it's supposed to be like a children's hospital. And so as a kid, we were there a lot. Later in my life, um, had another family member who suffered through just severe mental health challenges, and that marked much of my late elementary and junior high years. It affected our whole family. It was a, it was a different kind of pain and suffering. Late in high school, into college, we uh, buried a few family members who died young and unexpectedly. Shortly after that, I started in ministry, and so much of ministry is about moving towards people in their pain and suffering. Um, you know, if I just think about the last five or so years here, and I know many of you know this, friends, but there has been profound heartbreak in our years together. Uh, we've seen cancer steal life. We've known the pain of egregious sin. We have cried the impossible tears of losing children, and those tears are fresh again. Suffering has been, a, our church is young, and suffering has been a persistent reality of our church. So for so most of my life, I've been close to pain and suffering, and sometimes right in the middle, mostly near it, around it, just right on the edge, peering in and watching, watching people hurt. Uh, there's something that God's word teaches that has been confirmed in my experience in all of that. Everyone suffers, 
but not everybody suffers the same. Everyone suffers. Not everyone suffers the same. Everyone suffers, uh, here's what I mean, Elizabeth Elliot, she's the wife of Jim Elliot, who is a missionary who was martyred, and uh, she wrote a book called Suffering is Never for Nothing, and in that book she defines suffering this way, suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And everyone knows that experience. We all suffer to different degrees. Uh, some people have known pain that I'll just never know, and I know that. But being a part of, of, of a broken world as a human means that we're in a world where, where, where everyone either has, is, or will suffer. And it's loss or illness or being sinned against or even the suffering because of our own sin. We all know or will know having what we don't want or wanting what we don't have. Everyone suffers not everyone suffers the same. Here's what I mean. I, degrees, yes, that's true. But I mean not everyone responds to suffering the same. Suffering is like fire. And when suffering comes, some wither and some are refined. I have seen the life that in response to suffering withers. It grows cold and bitter. They respond to pain by hating God and hurting people. Fire comes and their life withers. And I have seen the life that responds to suffering with unfathomable faith and resilience. I saw it this week. They respond to pain by hoping in God and helping others. The fire comes and they're refined. And it's never clean. It's never clean. It's really messy work. But over time, there's a depth and beauty and hope to them that would not have happened without what happened. What's the difference? Um, as someone who's been near pain my whole life, I'm asking, what's the difference between those who wither and those who are refined? Everyone suffers. Not everybody suffers the same. And I imagine if we went around and if you could choose, we would all, I, I think we would all say we would just rather not suffer, but everybody suffers. I imagine if we could choose and we could say, I, would, I don't want to wither, I'd rather be refined. What's the difference? Uh, James is, is written to a suffering people. The people he's writing to are persecuted. They've been scattered from their home. They've seen their loved ones die, and they are living under the threat of death. And so they have what they don't want, persecution. And they want what they don't have, peace. So James talks about suffering a lot. Uh, he starts his book talking about suffering. Count it all joys when you face, when you face trials of different kinds. And he starts talking about, talking about suffering again here in verse 12. And Pastor James writes to his persecuted people about suffering. And he fills his letter with truth about suffering because he doesn't want them to wither. He wants them to be refined. And the wisdom he offers in these verses, the hope he offers, are the truths needed in suffering to protect us from, from, from withering. And friends, I, I just... I just feel as a pastor and as a person a sober responsibility to hold out these truths before us that we might be shaped by them. As someone who spent a lot of time close to people in pain, I have seen these very truths that we'll hear. They are life-sustaining, heart-holding truths that carry people I love and have gotten them not just through fire but have refined them in it. They're not the same. Here's how I've named them, as we'll see them in the passage. Suffering is not meaningless. God is not evil. He is good. And suffering will not last forever. Look at verse 12. 
Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And there's a burning one-word question that everybody asks when life is painful. Why? Um, it's one of the only things we continue to ask why about as we age. Um, children ask why about everything. If you've been around a four-year-old or a five-year-old lately, it's, it's, everything's why. Why do trees have leaves? Why can't dogs talk? Why doesn't it snow more in Texas? Why do we have noses? Why can't we eat candy for breakfast? It's this, it's this approach to life that, that asks a sincere question about all the parts of life that they don't understand. And as we age, one of the only experiences in life that recaptures that childlike why is suffering. Where we are, as adults, sincerely asking about something we don't understand. Why am I sick? Why did they leave me? Why did this happen? Why did their life end so soon? Why won't this marriage work? Why am I all alone? Why can't I keep any friends? Why? And the why question is a God-sized question, meaning we're looking for some sort of higher power, some sort of greater plan that can give an account for what we're going through. Like the most comforting thing we think would be if it just never happened at all. The second most comforting thing would be to try to understand why it happened. Does does, does what I'm going through mean anything at all? And here's what this why question does that we all ask when life is painful. It forces us to grapple with our expectation of what life should be like, what makes life good, or what we believe makes life good. That's the language James uses. James borrows a word that his brother famously used, blessed. Jesus in Matthew 5 starts his sermon with this word, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that word blessed means flourishing. It means favored, successful, doing really well. It's a vision for the good life, what it means for, for life to be flourishing. So if we could restate the verse like this, it, it would be the good life is the life that remains steadfast under trial. For when they stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life. And what James is doing is he is placing suffering in the context of the Christian story. He's not calling suffering good. It's not good. But he is saying that pain and trials and suffering, they have a meaningful place in the Christian life. He's already said that it matures us. Here he's saying it increases our love for God, our hope in God. Now, I just need to pause. There's a dissonance for me that, that always happens around this. Um, because it so often feels like the good life and the suffering life are just incompatible. They're two completely different things. Um, how many of us would rewrite verse 12? Blessed is the one who avoids all trials. For when they have pain-proof their life, they will truly live. So what I find myself often expecting out of life is this, that if I do what's right, then life will get better. And that's the deal I've made with God. Like, I expect life to just be this upward tra trajectory. I'm not expecting anyone to hand me anything. I know you need to work hard, but I am expecting if I work hard and live right, then life will increasingly get better. And by better, I mostly mean more comfortable and easier and more prosperous and less disappointing. And in the seasons of life, I'll just str string these seasons of life together that, that each grow increasingly better. Things are good now, but they'll be even better then. And like life is supposed to be some sort of painless, predictable minimally disappointing climb to the top of something. 
And you know when I know I believe that about life? When life's not like that. You see your expectations of life most clearly when they're not met. This should be easier, right? Parenting, marriage, pastoring, friendship, health. It should all be easier. And when it's not easy, when it's disappointing, or when it seems like, like, like everything is falling apart, it just it can feel so pointless. And that's not the Christian story. Uh, the verse doesn't read, blessed is the one who avoids all trials for when they've pain-proof their life, they'll really live. It reads, blessed is the one who remains steadfast in trial. For when they stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life. Here's the point. If the good life is the pain-free life, we just won't know what to do when pain comes. And everyone suffers. Pain's coming. Everyone suffers. If there's no meaning in life that can handle suffering, then pain will rob everything. What is distinctly rich and beautiful about the Christian story, about your story, Christian, those who are loved by God, have put their faith in Jesus, are hidden in Christ, suffering's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. I'm not saying there's an answer to every single one of our whys. Candidly, there is much suffering that fills my heart and mind with, I just don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that when we ask God why in our seasons of pain, we get something better than answers. We get a person, Jesus. Verse 12 describes the life of Jesus. Blessed is the man who endures, who withstands the trial. They'll get the crown of life. Jesus did that. Let me ask something. Did Jesus live a good life? Low income, no place to lay his head, viciously criticized by his enemies, mourned people he loved who lost their life, abandoned by his followers, betrayed by his friends, falsely accused, mercilessly beaten, publicly shamed, ruthlessly mocked, unjustly crucified. Isaiah called him the man of sorrows. Did he live a good life? Yes. Yes because it all meant something. It all had a purpose that suffering couldn't take away. It had a purpose that, that found its meaning even in the suffering. Had we been there at the cross, looked up to the sky and asked God why, his answer is for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was bruised for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins, the punishment for our peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Worthy are you, Jesus, because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus endured the greatest suffering. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me and he loves God and his suffering is what it took to forgive sin and one day to end all suffering. And he is now crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Jesus did this. And I have a lot of I don't knows. But if our Savior lived a life of suffering and meaning, somehow, some way, our suffering makes us like him and can bring us closer to him and that means it's not wasted. It's not wasted. Suffering's not meaningless. God is not evil. He is good. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why would a sufferer need to hear all of that? This section is about God's character. It it teaches us important things about sin that we'll get later in the letter. Uh, For now, I just want to give our attention to why James talks like this to sufferers. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil. Don't be deceived. God gives good gifts. What's he talking about? He's talking about the character of God, what God is like. He is not the kind of God that does evil. He's the kind of God that gives good gifts. Why does the sufferer need to hear that? Because nothing in life makes you question what God is like, like pain. And there is not a time in your life where it's more important to believe that God is who he says he is than when those things are hard to believe. A.W. Tozer says, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you, and that is especially true in suffering. In suffering, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And James is a pastor, James has done the hospital visits. James has officiated the funerals. James has wept with people he loves. He has, James has stood at the edge of the crater and peered in. And he knows how confusing this would be. The word tempt in 13 is the same word for trial in verse 12. Every trial comes with temptation. Uh, Satan tempts Jesus when? When he's weak, and when he's tired, and when he's hungry. Pain makes us vulnerable. And in our vulnerability, all kinds of things come out of our life. Suffering exposes us. My five-year-old was roller skating in the living room, not because we're fun parents. We were just too tired to enforce our rules. <laughs> and as she's roller skating, she fell, and, and, and when she fell, she said a word that I did not know that she knew. Um, and it wasn't a terrible word. It was just, it wasn't a great word. Um, and that word was in her head, and it came out of her mouth when she hit the ground. And suffering does that. Pain does that. Suffering has a way of of drawing things out of us that others and we didn't even know were in us. Pride and anger and envy and bitterness and self-righteousness and faithlessness and jealousy. And and I am am never more aware of my sin than when life is difficult. Um, It's like when life is going well, there are things in my life that settle that no one can see, and they just settle somewhere hidden in my life. But then when life is shaken, everything that has settled is stirred up, and it comes out. And you know what that can feel like if we don't know what God is like? That can feel like God is ruining me. God's attacking me. God is the one who's tempting me. God, does, does God want me to sin? Like, I would be a much better Christian if this had never happened. Or maybe there's a version of us uh, of this where we believe that suffering is punishment. Uh, As Christians, what we believe is every single ounce of punishment for sin was absorbed by Jesus on the cross on our behalf. But in our suffering, it feels, God, are you punishing me? I've done something wrong and God's letting me know. But sometimes the the, the punishment feels like it, it doesn't fit the crime. And so God must be cruel. And so there's a truth that gets distorted. And here's the truth. The truth is God allows suffering as a trial that produces endurance and leads to hope. The distortion, God authors evil 
to tempt me to sin, which leads to death. So the passage writes to sufferers and says, remember the character of God. He's not evil. He's good. What what will protect your heart from that distortion is believing the character of God. What's the difference, friends, between a thief with a knife and a doctor with a scalpel? Both cut, both hurt. What's the difference? Character. The heart behind what's about to happen. The thief just wants to hurt you, to rob you, and leave you less than you were before. The doctor wants to help you, to heal you, and the hope is that you'll be more than you were before. One uses pain to steal life. One uses pain. They have a vision for how that pain can can bring more life. And James is saying, in your suffering, do not believe that God is a thief who robs. There There is one who steals and kills and destroys. It's not God. If we believe about God that he is not evil, he is good, it not only allows us to face pain, but did you hear what James, where he, ended, where he went? It also allows us to receive gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Who's behind all that goodness? The father of lights. Well, what's he like? He's not sometimes dark and sometimes light. There are no shadows of evil in him at all, only goodness. You know what helps us remember that God's not the thief when we remember that God is the giver. He's the giver of good gifts. I want to be careful because everybody's story is different and suffering is such a complicated thing. But those that wither in suffering are often those who before their suffering treated the gifts of God as things I'm entitled to. And you do not give thanks for things that you think you're owed. Those who are refined, I know this to be true. Those who are refined are those who before their suffering marveled at God's goodness in their life, gave thanks daily for all that God has done. And that gratitude filled their life like a blanket of God's goodness. And so when life got cold, they did not call God a thief. They were warmed by his character, warmed by his good character. Those who are refined by their suffering, their hearts hold two things at once. Pain, pain, lament. They see hurt in their life. They see hurt in others' life. And they pray honest prayers to God. It's not cheap faith. It's how long, oh Lord. I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't know how much more I can take. There's a longing here for Jesus to return. But their hearts don't just hold pain. Their hearts also hold gratitude. They see the good and perfect gifts that God gives, the gift of life and breath and meals with friends in a church that loves and songs that sustain and creation that points to a beautiful God and and forgiveness that frees us. So their prayers are grief and gratitude, pain and beauty. How long, O Lord, and thank you, God. When will this end and you are more than enough? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Suffering is not meaningless. God is not evil. God is good. Suffering will not last forever. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we, sh- that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, first fruits is an illustration that you find a couple other places in the Bible. I want to read 
Eight, Romans 8.23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.20, this is beautiful. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, um, it's a farming analogy. Um, and here's my understanding. I'm not a farmer, but neither are you. Um, before the whole harvest would come in, you would get this crop that came in early. And the crop that came in early is called the first fruits. And what the first fruits tell you is the first fruits would tell you the quality of what the rest of the harvest would be when it comes in. So what, whatever came in early would tell you the condition of what was coming in later. If the first fruits were rotten, the rest of the harvest would be rotten. If the first fruits were good, the rest of the harvest would be good. What came first told you what would come later. Jesus' resurrection is said to be the first fruits of new creation. His glorified, eternal, imperishable, healed, pain-free body that would never know death again. That was the glorious first fruits of eternity. And what comes first tells you what comes later. His resurrection is the first of a whole harvest of resurrection. All who follow him will be made like him in victory. And James carries that further and says, brought forth by the word of truth. He's talking about our salvation. He's saying our salvation in Jesus, even now, is a kind of first fruits of new creation. It means we are already a part of a coming harvest that is free of suffering. One day, Jesus returns. Everything is made right. Everything sad is untrue. Death will be no more. Suffering won't last forever. And you know what happens in verse 12? James says something beautiful. He says, when we stood the test, we received the crown of life. There's this exchange of healing that happens when we see Jesus. When the whole harvest comes, you exchange your wounds for a crown. All you've lost, all that has hurt, all you've endured, it's all seen by God. It's laid at the feet of Jesus. And in exchange for wounds, he gives a crown, life with him forever. Suffering won't last forever. Jesus will last forever, and with him we will too. Suffering's not meaningless. God is not evil, he is good. Suffering won't last forever, and these truths, if you hold them in your heart, they will refine you. You know what that sounds like? Um, I sent a message this week early in the week to a handful of friends, many who are in the room. Uh, most belong here as citizens, friends and family, and, and they're all men and women who have suffered in, in different ways. And they're all men and women who at, at some level I have stood on the edge and watched them be refined. And I just asked them, I said, would you share verses, quotes that sustained you in your suffering? Like what words have helped hold you that you keep going back to? And I want to read the responses because in these responses you hear what God is doing, how God has met them, what God has done through them, how he's refined, how he's filled them with hope. It's, it's not just, it's one thing to share truth from God's word. It's another thing to share truth from God's word and testimony from God's people. I asked a friend who's a cancer survivor. He knows what it's like to be really sick. He shared Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. It took me a long time to find this book in the Bible. <laughs> Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no fruit on the vines. 
Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I asked a friend who lost a child. She knows unbearable grief and she sent a prayer that she prays. Now lead me and comfort me, O Christ, until my long grief is seen at last for what it is, a small and passing thing that will one day crumble and give way to unimagined glory. Lead me and comfort me, O Christ, through all my days until your kingdom is finally and fully realized. Your victory over death is demonstrated complete. All your good promise is perfectly fulfilled and sorrow and sighing have fled forever. I asked a friend whose wife abandoned him and their three children. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He sent a quote from John Piper. Faith-filled suffering is essential in this world for the most intense, authentic worship. When we are most satisfied with God in suffering, he will be most glorified in us in worship. I asked a friend who was abused, sinned against in an unspeakable way. She sent Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I asked a friend whose husband died tragically, unexpectedly, young. She sent a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. Out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. And she added this. It could go in a book. While I would never wish for the trials in my life, Jesus has become all the sweeter and more beautiful than I could imagine. So I could never wish away those trials that continued to afford me such immense gain in knowing him more intimately. Goodness. I asked, I asked my mom. She sent this quote from Charles Spurgeon. God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I asked my little brother, He sent Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you hear it? This is what it sounds like to be refined. It's not perfect. It's not without struggle. It's not dishonest. But I have found in life, even in the worst parts of life, that it's not meaningless that God is good, and I have a hope that one day suffering is gone forever, and in all of that, I'm not withering. And here are the verses God's used to sustain me. Here are the words I've held on to. In other words, in my suffering, I have sought God, and he has met me and held me and carried me. I'm going to try to share this and then pray. In the hospital Friday, David sang a song with his little boy there who would leave soon. Surrounded by family, we prayed, we read scripture, and David said, I want to sing a song that I sing to the boys at bedtime. It's a song called Jesus is Lord. Hear the words. Jesus is Lord, my Redeemer. How he loves me, how I love him. He is risen, he is coming. Lord, come quickly. 
Hallelujah. Father, we need you. We love you. You have not left us to face the darkness alone. You have not abandoned us to wither in our trials. You have lived the life of sorrows and have come out the other side whole, healed, victorious, gracious, merciful. And graciously ready to meet us in our pain. Thank you. It's not pointless. God, you're good. Jesus, you will return and everything sad is untrue in a moment. And so we thank you. I pray for those in the room who are in a season of suffering. I don't know all the stories you do. I don't know what it's felt like to be them right now listening to all this, but you do. And I pray, God, that you would use your words to carry them, God. You would use their words to bind the brokenness in them. That you would use your words to not only give them a vision for a future and a hope that is sure, but also comfort in the present, God, that you alone can give. I pray that you would protect them from feeling crushed or guilted or shamed or despairing or bitter, but God, you would move us together as your people, all of us, towards the refining work you want to graciously do in our souls because you love us. You love us. Amen.